I'm a card carrying Basie at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, Just next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post game podcast. Welcome to the Warden Moneyball post game podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two hour show, which aired Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Time until 10 a.m. Eastern Time. This past week, I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics of the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. I was joined in the studio by my friend and colleague and co-host Eric Bradlow, who is the marketing professor at the Wharton School and also a statistics professor. And we covered a number of topics, including basketball, the NFL draft, and two of our favorite topics, baseball and horse racing. Our guests were Rick Peterson who is a former Major League pitching coach, claimed author, and he's our regular guest in the studio every other week. And we talked about baseball, and we also featured Jeff Cedar. Jeff Cedar is a analyst of horses. He owns a farm. He's a consultant. He owns EQB Consulting Company, and he really is one of the premier experts on horses. And we love to have him in the studio in the days preceding a major horse race. And of course, coming up is the Kentucky Derby. So our first clip is a non-guest clip. We were talking about the American League East. We have the Yankees and the Orioles vying for first place. Both of the teams were predicted to do badly this year, particularly the Orioles. They were forecasted to be in last place in the American League East. And the Yankees were forecasted to be either in third or fourth place. As we turn around and look at the standings, the Yankees and the Orioles are a nice, comfortable lead over the predicted champion of the East, which was the Red Sox. And the question is, what's going on and what do we forecast for the end of the season? Let's go to the clip. So the Yankees are 43 runs scored more than they've allowed. They've allowed only 97, which is second in lowest number of runs scored, second only to the Chicago White Sox. And they have scored an enormous number of runs, 140. That is second only to the Washington so Nationals. So if I take 140... Actually, in the Milwaukee Brewers. If I take 140 squared, which is roughly 20,000, mm-hmm. and divide by 140 squared... Plus 97 said, well, squared. Well, I can do that math in my head. That's oh, going to yes, be two-thirds, can. roughly. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be. It's yeah. 20,000 over 20,000 plus 10,000, roughly. It's, it's, it's around it's actually sixty-eight percent. It's exactly right. that, and and it's it's so. Therefore, the Yankees are expected to have a six-eighty winning percentage. They only only have a six-forty. They're actually underperforming. Their residual is negative. So the residual is the difference between what's observed and what's expected. And so they're actually underperforming, while the Orioles have have overperformed. So if you rolled this forward, you'd expect That's what the Yankees. I was ask you. Well, if you rolled this forward, you expect you'd say the Yankees are for real, and the and the Orioles are overplaying their quality. Now, what's really interesting is to go back to the what we call priors. So what were the seasons prior forecasts? I think the Yankees were at 81. I think so the, Yankees the Yankees were exactly were, at 500. The Yankees were at 81, which put them at, this is a tough league, so tough division, tough league, and put them at about third or fourth in their particular conference and their division. The Yankees were supposed to be second to last, maybe third to last. The Orioles were supposed to be last. So it, we asked Rick on the air, what would you do with that information? The new information compared to the old information, would you update to forecast that right. the Orioles Based are actually pretty good? Games. And so if you integrate all the information that we have, the 16-9 and record for the, for the Orioles, a Pythagorean that predicts 50%, a prior 
calculation predicted well under 500. And Rick is still sticking with the, with the Orioles at sub 500. How do I put those all together in some way to come up with some overall forecast? Okay, well, that's what's complicated. And right. you typically do this if this was Rufus Peabody that we're talking about, the professional gambler right. and this colleague a, of, of Kay Massey. Yep. Uh, he would say you, what you do is you do what works. So in other words, you go back historically and you take the probably a linear regression of all this information and you try to see which predicts best in the long run. And if you were like Rick or Baseball Perspective, I think you'd be selling the Orioles right now, given when that they're say, overperforming. Just to be clear, when, he, uh, when Adi means selling, he means he's predicting tremendous shrinkage back from 640 to what the prior is. Yeah. In other words, selling isn't if like selling a stock. It, if you own it, you basically say it's not going to do... Think, people think it's overvalued. So when I say sell something, that's gambler's code for it's worth less than people think it is. Okay, so... Let me try to unpack a few of the major themes. Um, so the paradox here is you have two teams that are overperforming their preseason expectations, and that's what we call the priors, the, the preseason expectations, based on essentially the lineup characteristics. Um, I, I didn't make one of these forecasts on my own, although I have to say if I had to, I would have done things a little bit differently. I would have used payroll and previous years of wins as a predictor. And if you had done that, actually, you predict the Orioles to do quite a bit better than 500, but let's just save that aside. The experts have predicted not such great fortune for the Orioles. That's a prior. But we have two new pieces of information which have arrived as the season has progressed. So 25 games, and the Orioles are 16-9, and nine, and so that suggests that they're going to do much, much better than 500. On the other hand, their actual runs scored, runs allowed calculation, which we call the Pythagorean formula, predicts a 500 winning percentage. So take it all together. What do you do? And that's a tough problem. And the Rick, Rick Peterson suggested that you go back down to under 500 for the rest of the season. Um, I'm not so sure I would go all the way down under 500. But as I mentioned, someone who would really decide to do something formal might look at the historical data and see what has worked in the past. Something that we're going to keep our eye on going forward. Let's look at the Yankees. Let's look at the Orioles and see what they produce as the year progresses. So let's now go to a clip with Rick Peterson. He was talking about the spin rates and how they forecast the quality of pitching. So this year, Irvin Santana of Minnesota is 5-0. and with a 0.66 ERA, he's got a whip of 0.71. Let's compare that to his career numbers, which are 138 wins and 116 losses, certainly nothing to be ashamed about, a 4.03 ERA, and a 1.27 whip. And I also looked up his advanced metrics. He throws it slower than the average pitcher, his spin rate is less, and his exit velocity is lower. You know, on the analytics side, he's got a great record, great ERA, great whip, much better than his career average, much better in a later part of his career, but the measurables, speed, spin rate, velocity, are all worse than the major league average. How does something like this happen? Well, for, first of all, what people don't understand about spin rate, for example, low spin rate, those are the guys who throw ground balls. Those are the sinker ball guys. So, so this average spin rate, which is 2,200 RPMs on a fastball, if you're like 1,800, if you get down to 1,700, those are your ground balls. That, that ball is going to sink. You know, and so what I'd be curious about in, in his numbers, what his ground ball fly ball ratio is compared to his career stats. Because it sounds to me like a lot of pitchers will do later on in their career, you know, they say that Sabathia has done the same thing. 
later on in their career when their velocity is going the other direction, they start going to more two-seam fastballs, which is going to get a lower spin rate, which is going to produce more ground balls. You know, so for example, Zach Britton throws 95, 98 miles an hour. He has low spin rate, and he and he's got the he's got to sabermetrically the best pitch in all of baseball, a 97 mile an hour sinker. And I think a, a year ago, in 60 plus innings, he recorded 15 outs in the air. <laughs> Are you kidding me? 15 outs in the air? That, that's impossible. So my guess is that Santana. Pitching in a pitcher-friendly ballpark in Minnesota, number one, probably I bet quite a few of the starts are at home. You know, they're pitching in weather that's not conducive for for offense in Minnesota. Then he's got low spin rate, so he's probably gone to more two-seam fastballs, and he's going to produce more ground balls. So Eric kind of begins the conversation by issuing a, a challenge, which is how do you square the two pieces of information which we have about Erwin Santana. One is that his measurables are off the charts great, very low ERA, 5-0 winning percentage, 0.71 whip. These are absolutely minuscule numbers. But his career numbers are incredibly, well, they're a little bit better than mediocre, but they're not great. And even if you look at his stat cast numbers or, or his measurables, in this season, they're not so great. He doesn't throw that fast. Uh, spin rate is low. Um, so really the question posed to, to Rick was what gives? And, and his explanation was, well, low spin rates with high speed, they work together to produce lots of ground balls. And in a, in a pitcher-friendly park like Minnesota, you put it together and you can have really terrific success. So spin rates by themselves, well, in certain capacities, you want them to be very fast, maybe with a fastball. But if you're a single ball pitcher, actually, you want them to be very slow. It all depends on how you concoct your cocktail, if you will. So we'll be hearing more about these kinds of things in the future. So let's take another uh, listen to Rick Peterson. And Rick Peterson's really going to talk about the combination of different, different types of attributes in a pitch. So recipes are a combination of, of many great ingredients. And when you start putting spices and condiments on, on the recipe, you know, now you spice it up a little bit. A little, like people say, you like Tabasco? I like Tabasco. Well, why don't you put about a half a bottle on it? How do you like it now? You don't like it. <laughs> no, I don't like it. You don't like, you don't like I it. I do. <laughs> right, right. So when you take a look at Kershaw, Kershaw has, has the curveball that has great depth to it, great, great vertical movement to it. His, his four-seam fastball has a, has a slightly higher spin rate. And, and so the combination of the fastball that stays on plane and the breaking ball that has great depth, those two combinations, you know, I always ask pitchers when you talk about their game plan, it's like, hey, do you like vanilla ice cream? Yeah, I like vanilla ice cream. Do you like ketchup? Yeah, I like ketchup. Do you like ketchup on your vanilla ice cream? No, I don't like that. I don't like that. They don't go together. You know, so what, what, as a pitching coach, you want to take the, the game plan and what, what, what is complementary. And you take complementary flavors, for example, you know, peanut butter and chocolate, they go really well together, peanut butter and jelly. But just peanut butter alone, that's a little strong. But if you complement it with, with what the, the complement flavor is, you know, now this is, like, awesome. You know, so you have to take a pitcher. So, like, the sinker, you know, the, the sinker, it really matches with a, with a slider with, with, that has great depth to it. You know, the four-seam fastball that stays on plane up in the strike zone, that, 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 that's very complementary to the curveball. The changeup, on the other hand, the changeup goes with everything. 
So one of the holy grails of analytics for pitching analysis is to try to take the information you can measure about a pitch, its trajectory, its depth, which is really its break, as Rick Peterson called it, its spin rate, velocity, all the things that we think go into, have to go into determining whether a pitch is a tough pitch to hit or not, and use analytics to determine it. And the problem is, is that there isn't any good way to do that. And what Rick is identifying is that you can't just look at things one piece at a time. It's like vanilla ice cream is great. Velocity is great. That's like vanilla ice cream. And spin rate might be great. That's your ketchup. But sometimes if you put them together, you don't get what you want. And so the real key to pitching is combinations and how you can frame all the pitches collectively as a group. And this is the art of pitching and why pitching really is an art. And what makes Kershaw so terrific is this huge curveball with great depth. That means it it basically breaks a lot. And a fastball that's flatter, but has movement and is extraordinarily quick. And then if the last comment, which I think Rick just threw out at us, which is a changeup goes with everything. And I was reading an article recently that talked about uh, a staff that tries to teach every one of its pitchers a changeup. A changeup and a fastball by themselves can be a great pitcher. Just that's it. Changeups just seem to take a little bit longer to get to home plate and they destroy the timing of the batter. And as a consequence, a pitcher who has a great changeup has almost an often an unbeatable weapon. So that concludes our discussion of baseball. Now let's turn our attention to horse racing. And as I mentioned in the opening, our guest was Jeff Cedar, who's the founder and president of EQB Consulting. He has a stable, Wyndham Stables, not too far outside of Philadelphia. And his real interest is in advising clients on how to buy young horses. And he's been using analytical methods to identify prize-winning horses at a very young age. And he's got some incredible wisdom about horse racing and the Kentucky Derby which is coming up is a, a great p- point in time to bring in his expertise. So let's go to our first clip. The Kentucky Derby, as you know, it used to be the coming out party. They're just, horses are not mature till they're five. At three, they're really adolescents. They're teenagers. And it, at three, they're just, it used to be the, you know, the new crop was, they were trying to figure out who's the best of the new crop. Now, once you win the Derby, you may be retired soon thereafter. But anyway, I have the results of that for the, all the 23 horses coming into the Kentucky Derby this year. Oh, so you have the logarithmic decay curve. So just just to re- rephrase for our listeners so that you can get a sense, what Jeff is telling us is that you can use the short distances to forecast how they're going to do in the longer distance by looking at the rate at which they slow down. And right. all horses slow down as they go longer, but some horses don't slow down as fast as others. And that's right. that's when the, you see a horse passing all the others in the stretch and this big move at the end of the race, if it's not on the grass. It, which is different that it, almost always he is not he is slowing down the others are just slowing down more isn't 23 a fairly large number of horses to be running this race well they only the three of them will be alternatives you know somebody has to come out 20 start well let's go systematically jeff but it's to not a lot of horses because 30,000 are born a year and only 20 can qualify to be here, and everybody wants to be there. You know, $2 million race. Wait, wait, hold on a second. 30,000 are, are born who are th- they're thoroughbred racing potential. Is right. that what you Okay. And 20 of them are going to be a run for the roses. So what's that? Less, a lot less than 1%. I see. Oh yeah, it's one. Well, it's, well, it's less than one in a thousand. So, Jeff, let me just start systematically going through stuff. You already mentioned twenty horses in the race. Let's just start systematically. What does the start position? Does that have a huge effect on the race and the strategy in the race? Yeah, it has effect on the strategy. Uh, there has been one from the outside post. I mean, Big Brown is an example. You know, it. it, it What's the ideal position? 
the ideal positions are supposed to be like there's two starting gates and right. so that you get some you get some distance between the, where the two starting gates are i forget exactly i think it's at the 12 and the 13 are separated wherever it is that's a good spot to be because you've got space on one side of you so you don't get slammed or squeezed and you can do some of what you want well, there was quite a bit of information about the upcoming Kentucky Derby. We learned some beautiful information about what it is. Really, it's a coming out party for the very young horses. They're not quite three. And 30,000 are bred each year. And so only 20 get into the Kentucky Derby. So they really are the creme de la creme. Eric asked an interesting question about positioning and where you may or may not want to be. And I'd suggest you listen to the entire show if you want to hear a detailed conversation about positioning and jockeys. But we began by talking about an analytical question, which is, how do you forecast the winner of the Kentucky Derby when none of these horses have actually ran this distance yet, which is a mile and a quarter? At most, they've run is about a mile or a mile and an eighth. And so the way that's done is by essentially building a logarithmic model for the way, the rate at which horses slow down. And even in a mile and a quarter, you can sense or detect differences at the rate at which horses slow down. And the horses that slow down the slowest, if you will, are the horses that you can expect to have the best finishes in the longer race, the Kentucky Derby, which is a mile and a quarter. We look forward to maybe bringing Jeff Cedar back when we talk uh, to, to him in the days before the Belmont Stakes, which is a mile and a half race, which is ungodly long for a horse race. And that's where the analytics really comes into play because you really want to try to figure out which horse can make that incredibly long endurance uh, race. And that's not an easy thing to forecast. So in our last clip, Jeff is going to um, give some insight into which particular horses might do well in this upcoming Kentucky Derby. Always Dreaming and Classic Empire are kind of elite based on these measurements compared to the other 18 or 20 horses. Absolutely, but I can give you two horses that are going to be 50 to 1 that are going to, I think, can have a shot at being right there with them. When I'm as a maiden, it's never won a race. Its name is Sonneteer. The last time I, I said something like that about a maiden, it was a, what was Nolan's cat. He was a maiden, and I told the guy to put him in the Belmont Stakes when he asked me what to do with him, and they laughed. And then I got abuse from the racing form, said, you know, the nutcakes and the idiots and the blah, blah, blah that are entered here. And he came in third, and he was closing fast. And then he was second in another grade one race. So it turned out it wasn't any fluke. So what is the definition of a maiden? Last, and he trailed the field, and I said, wait, wait, wait. And the, the trainer was pissed and this and that. And then he just never slowed down. And at the end, he was passing everybody, and he was third coming on strong. Who was the other horse that you liked that maybe have long has longer odds? Uh, State of Honor. State of Honor is at 50, 50 to 1. 50 to 1, yeah. Wow, State of Honor. Looking at Lee. Looking at Lee. Very so why, why do you like these two, from the from their decay curves? Yeah. I looked at their races and the splits and how they ran. They come from behind. They handle traffic, and they don't slow down. Now, whether they've got the class to do it or not, I don't know. But this is an important variable. I think they're legitimate contenders here. Why you do know, you they may just freak out. Some horses, they get in the gate with these other tremendous horses, you know, and they're intimidated, and they, that's it. They'll run... Uh, a minute and 10 seconds against cheap horses, which is pretty fast for, say, three-quarters of a mile, and then you put them in against the big dime, and the, and the race will go in a minute and 11 seconds, and they're nowhere. They're nowhere. And you say, well, what the hell happened? It's called the, the class factor, and it's pretty hard to predict. Well, there you have it. 
We've got a forecast, three horses that are not predicted to do particularly well and have long odds, 50 to 1, 33 to 1, Sonneteer, State of Honor, and looking at Lee, by the logarithmic decay curves, they look to have a better shot at winning than the odds, at least the current odds are suggesting. Those odds will change. Horse racing odds aren't finalized until all the money is in, and so that won't happen until seconds before the race actually begins, so we don't really know what the final odds will be. But these horses are not predicted to do well because they actually haven't done well yet. But the argument made by Jeff is that given the longer race, they might actually have the strength and the stamina to win this longer race, the Kentucky Derby, than they've had uh, in the previous races, which they haven't quite done so well. Otherwise, they'd have better odds. And we'll just wait to see what happens in the Kentucky Derby. And maybe we'll come visit this issue again and reflect on how we did. That doesn't happen too often in the regular media sources. Maybe we'll be better about that going forward. So that concludes our Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. Remember, you can listen to the full show either on SoundCloud or on Apple Store under podcasts, or maybe live Wednesday mornings, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. I am your host, Adi Weiner, professor at the Wharton School. And until then... Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your statistics.